This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The information presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past Money Talks broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen on your iPhone or Android phone to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on demand. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Tapp, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Good morning, Ryder. What about the financial news in the news this week? Good morning, Kevin. Well, I'm just really excited about this episode, uh, talking about stocks, of course, is, is, has long been my passion. But kind of following up on last week, and it's great because last week we were talking about the, the sharp decline in the market, and it recovered some. It looks like we're having a down day so far this morning. And so looking at just how individual investors are participating in the markets, it does look like there was – a decent bit of selling from smaller individual investors last week that may have been leading some of that decline. All right. As you mentioned, uh, we're talking about stocks in the stock market today. But uh, if you're listening, any kind of financial question, we'll see if Ryder can't give you some assistance this morning. What about earnings of a company? Is it important to try to know some information about that before you think about investing? And if so, how do you go about trying to find out about a company's earnings? Yes, earnings are one of the most important things. So when we take a step back and we think about what are stocks, why do we buy stocks, why do we invest in them, stocks represent shares of a company. And the reason for owning or starting a company is to make money. And that we generally call earnings. And earnings are your revenue minus all of your expenses. And so I did pull up as an example because we always talk about – we always kind of reach around for a company example. So I did pull up an example that is not just Apple, Google, or Facebook. <laughs> I pulled up the, the financial statements for Pfizer. And so you can look at their financial statements. Their last – they reported for a half of a year for the six months ended in July 4th. They reported over $33 billion in revenue. They ended up – with about $10 billion in actual profit. And that's because, of course, running a large company costs a lot of money, so they spend about $20 billion or $20-something billion running that company. That involves you know, the cost of all of the things they manufacture, the cost of shipping them, all of those salaries for all of those people they're paying to work in labs and do those studies. And, of course, they, they acquire companies and they buy patents and things like that, and they have to license things from other folks. So there's a lot of costs. So you look at the revenue, you subtract all the costs, and what's left is the earnings. Um, could we use the term net profit and earnings interchangeably? Yes, I think so. Sometimes people may use them slightly differently, but generally, yes. And I will say there are a lot of different ways – to when you get down to it and look at all of the detailed numbers of a company, there are a lot of different ways to measure that. So some people may 
may measure earnings before certain expenses or after certain expenses. Some people may want to look at the earnings of a company before taxes. Some people may want to look at it before they have paid out interest or before they have paid uh, interest on debt that they owe or before they have paid dividends. So there are a handful of ways of looking at what goes into those earnings, but generally as a general term, yes, earnings, net profit, all of that is the same. So uh, one of the other things I think that we should look at or someone uh, investing in stocks should look at uh, that we talked a lot about on the show about sort of investing is, is a long-term, long-run uh, situation. So you might be excited by some a company's earnings, but what about the stability? How important is the stability of a stock, and how do you go to try to find out about a company's stability? That's absolutely right, because we're buying these companies not just for the earnings they are having today, and we're not buying them for the earnings they've already had, because those, that money has been earned, uh, and that is just sitting in cash in a bank account or that has been distributed to shareholders in some way. We're buying for that future earnings, so you have to look at that and look at the current earnings and say, do I expect these earnings to increase? Do I expect them to stay the same? How likely do I think that is? So when you talk about stability, you're talking about at least them continuing to survive in the same manner that they're doing. So continuing. So so if we're looking at Pfizer, and this these Pfizer numbers are, are, are huge, I will say that, and they are uh, fairly large this year. But you are looking to say, okay, will Pfizer continue to earn this many dollars or something thereabout into the future? Or will they continue to earn more? Or will I avoid it if, they, if I expect them to earn less? So that, 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 I think, is what you would look for with stability. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Taft. We're talking about the stocks, stocks in the stock market, but also looking for any personal finance questions that you might have. We'll continue our discussion about stocks after the break. What do the used clothing dealer Poshmark, the dating app Bumble, and TV manufacturer Vizio have in common? We've got that information for you after the break. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Tapp, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. We're talking about stocks in the stock market, but also looking for any kind of personal finance question that you might have. 
Uh, we asked a question before the break about the used clothing dealer Poshmark, the dating app Bumble, and TV manufacturer Vizio. What do those three companies have in common? Well, they're some of the newest companies to go public and offer shares of stock for sale to the public. We'll ask Ryder about uh, that uh, process in just a minute, but we have a caller to get to. So first, let's say hello to Heather in Biloxi. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. Go ahead. Uh, what does the advisor think about the change in the ruling on non-spousal inheritance on a 401k? And does that include a um, one of the um, other types of 401k where the taxes are taken out? So uh, thank you so much for that call, Heather. That's a great question. And inheritance of IRA-type accounts, deferred tax-type accounts, IRAs, 401Ks, and even Roth IRAs is a, is, a, is a big topic. It's something that people worry about and ask a lot of questions about. So thank you for asking that question, Heather. So what she's referring to, I will explain how it used to be. It used to be that you would put money into these accounts, these 401ks, these IRAs, you would defer your income for taxes. So you'd save money putting in, but then you would be taxed when you came out. Now, the IRS doesn't want you to defer that income forever. They would require you to start withdrawing it when you were 70 and a half. Now that's 72. If you died and you pass that account on to someone else, they would be required to start withdrawing it. If it was a spouse, they could essentially treat that as their own. So they could just roll that over, they could put it in their name, and they could they would only be required to withdraw it when they turned 70 and a half, now 72. The rule for folks who were not spouses is essentially they had to start withdrawing it, but they withdrew it based on their lifetime. So if they were, say, at 70, they would probably withdraw about 4% of it in the first year, and that would be a slightly increasing percentage. If they were, say, 30, they might only withdraw one5 or 2% of that account, so a much smaller amount, and that would let that money grow and grow a lot more, and also it would minimize the person inherit the heirs taxes. The new rule, the change on non-spousal inheritance of 401k that Heather referred to is a 10-year rule. So if you are not the spouse of the person who passes on their IRA to you, you have 10 years in which to withdraw it. It's not exactly clear yet. The IRS has released some preliminary guidance that caused a little more confusion than it should have. But as far as we know right now, you simply have 10 years. You could not withdraw anything or withdraw it all in the 10th year. I think what makes sense in a lot of cases is maybe deferring it for a little bit, but withdrawing it over time so that you don't have a much larger tax bill in one year. But this is a big change for folks, and it, and it, and it changes the way people are doing their estate plans in a big way. And I think if you have if you have been planning on passing on an IRA or a 401k to someone who is not your spouse, say passing them on to other family members, passing them on to children, passing them on to friends, if, if you're doing that, if you have been planning on doing that, then 
it is a great time to sit down with your advisor, sit down with your estate planner, sit down with whoever is, is helping you out with these and see what the implications are. Because especially if you have a large account, that is going to be a much, much larger tax burden on that person. I appreciate that they've simplified the rules a little bit, and it's just it's just one rule covers most situations. But at the same time, it is going to be a much larger tax burden for the person inheriting the money. All right, Heather, thank you for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. So we mentioned that uh, Poshmark, Bumble, and Vizio are some of the newest companies to go public and offer shares of stock uh, 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 sale for sale to the public. So, Ryder, maybe an obvious question, but w- before a company goes uh, public, the people that own the company are supplying all the money? Basically, yes. There's a number of sources the companies have for money. They could be individual investors, so private investors, especially you hear about angel investing or venture capital. Maybe someone has a startup idea and they get funding from folks who just they just b- believe in the person, and that's why it's called angel investing. You're just the, you're just that person saving grace, coming in and writing a check. Then there's various stages of venture capital where. Other somewhat institutional investors will help supply money, maybe some expertise, maybe kind of help you grow the company, get you on a solid footing. You can also take out loans from a bank. You can also issue debt. But yes, there's a lot of private money out there. The reason that a company goes, there are a couple of major reasons companies go public. One is it allows those private investors who have invested in that company from the beginning, kind of been there for a long time, it allows them to get their money out and do something else. So you mentioned Vizio. That is a company that's been around for almost 20 years now. It's an American manufacturer of flat screen TVs. Uh, it's an interesting company to me. I, I, I just I, I like some stuff about them. But they have had investors who since you know the early 2000s have had a lot of their money, a lot of their net worth tied up in the company, and they haven't been able to cash it out and buy a house, cash it out and send their kids to college, cash it out and take a vacation. Now, I'm sure they they have other money to rely on. The rules around investing in private companies, you can never put too much of your net worth in one one basket, too much of your net worth egg in one basket. But going public allows them to cash out and it opens them up to the broadest possible pool of investors. So folks like you and me who don't have all the specialized knowledge, don't have all the specialized connections, and don't have the amount of money that it might take to invest in private companies can then just go to the stock exchange. We can go to our broker. We can go to our Schwab or TD Ameritrade and say, I want to buy a little tiny, teeny tiny piece of Vizio because I think they make great TVs and I want to be a part of that story. And, and so that's how and why they open up to the public. That's interesting. I never knew the uh, sort of the rewarding the early investors uh, facet of, of uh, the, the IPO. Uh, but then again, also uh, with more uh, people owning stock and investing, the company then has that more capital to work with. Absolutely. So how do they determine or does the company determine uh, the amount of shares that they will release to the public? And then how is it determined the cost? Basically, yes. They, the, the 
they determine kind of how much they want to raise. The company companies going public, especially these days, are for the most part fairly mature companies. Visio isn't just some fly-by-night startup by, by any means. They're a major manufacturer, and they and they make a lot of money. Uh, so they will have a fairly good corporate structure already. They already have shares. They're just not publicly traded. So they may say, okay, we want to raise $100 million in our IPO. What they will often do, they will work with uh, capital markets bankers. So these are bankers who specialize in in connecting these private companies to the public market. So these bankers work with lots of end clients, some of them like you and I, and they gauge what the appetite is. They say, okay, well, people are going to be willing to buy something around $20. You don't want to go public and sell your share for $10,000, and then it's just that's just a weirdly high number that might turn people away. So they'll determine you want to sell $100 million. We're going to sell it for, say, we're going to sell it for uh, $10 a share. We're going to sell a billion shares. They just kind of do this. And then, and then the banker's job is to go out and, and help find clients. And the company you know, puts on a show for them, and, and, and the banker helps bring in clients, gets in commitments to buy shares and things like that. So it's a, it's a big just brokered process of, of going public. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We've got another caller on the line. It's Madeline is called in from Columbus. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, so my uh – I was married for 22 years, and my ex-husband has a lumber um, account that was part of our divorce. So I receive, uh, I will be receiving the dividends from that from that money. Um, it roughly works out to about forty thousand dollars, and the account is going to be closing up. Uh, so I'm wondering what I should be doing with that money. My main concern, that normally I would just go ahead and roll it over into my IRA that I have, but my main concern right now is we just started up a new business, and we are really in a financial crunch. Um, and so I'm wondering, do I allocate those monies, split them in half? Uh, do I keep the whole amount and pay the taxes uh, because I am... Uh, uh, in my early 50s, so I'm not, I'm not eligible for it to be, not you know heavily taxed. I'm just wondering what to do with that money. So, Madeline, that's an interesting question. When you say it was an account, was what do you mean? It was in a 401k type account, in a deferred tax account. It wasn't a deferred tax account. It's um, it's in a trust account that was done through uh, through the lumber industry. So it's uh, it's part of a retirement account. Yes. Okay, so it's part of a retirement account. Yes. So withdrawing it would create a taxable uh, headache for you, uh, to say the least. There are ways of taking money out of an IRA or four hundred one k before you reach 59 and a half, that's the kind of magical age when you can withdraw tax-free, or sorry, penalty-free. You still pay, you pay taxes on any deferred withdrawals you make. 
there are ways. There are what, something called an SEPP. It's a substantially equal periodic payment. You still pay the income tax, but you do avoid that 10% penalty tax. There are a couple of hardship exceptions. I don't know that um, helping out your new business in a financial bind counts as a hardship exception, but if would, it were, yeah. Would Corona, I mean, would the whole coronavirus thing, because I know last year there they, they eliminated the penalties for 401k withdrawals. Um, there, there was a large coronavirus uh, hardship exemption last year, and there were a couple of different rules around it. I do not believe that exists for this year. My understanding so, is that if it's declared within the state that you live in that there is a um, – oh, boy, that there's – like, like for example, we just had the hurricane come through, and so mm -hmm. that would be one of those exemptions. <laughs> if it's declared a national, uh, like a national emergency in your state, that that would qualify you. Yes. Yeah, so I, I don't know when the uh, the specific deadline. I, I, again, I believe that was mostly for last year. Uh, if you have a CPA or a tax preparer you work with, they would be someone who's a little more knowledgeable about specific exemptions to that penalty tax. Okay. But otherwise, yes, it's, I mean, as far as if you are in a financial bind and that is money, then yes, that is a good source for that money. But, you, but your other instinct was right. Keeping that in an IRA type account is going to avoid all of the, the, the tax penalties and headaches. Uh, of course, if you're in a financial bind and your income is very low, your tax burden, uh, your, the total taxes on that may not be very significant anyway. Okay, gotcha. Martin Mallon? Yeah, because we would be under $100,000 as far as any cap. There would, I mean, we're not anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. For my husband, my new husband and I's, our financial income would be definitely, it, it, it's under 80. Yeah, so you would be in, oh, I want to say, to just the 12% tax bracket. So your actual taxes on it would not be significant. And the, the penalty tax, uh, if there's no way around it, it's, it's, it's not the end of the world. Um, but that is, you know, withdrawing, being in a position where you have to take a 10% haircut on your money is, is not, a, not, a great, not a great place to be. All right, Madeline, thanks for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're taking your personal finance questions. We'll continue our discussion about stocks in just a bit. What's the most expensive stock of all time? We've mentioned it before on the show, and Ryder says he'd like a share if you're feeling generous. We'll have that information for you when you're coming back. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio.
matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone. Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. Money Talks is MPB's Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Good morning. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. He's a chartered financial analyst and holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. So the most expensive publicly traded stock of all time is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, BRK.A is their symbol, uh, which is trading as of September 24th at $418,119. A fun fact, we talked about this stock on our show of April 16th of 2019. The price of that day was $314,250. So, Ryder, it keeps going up and up. It keeps going up. And and one, a, a couple things to think about, it, it's the price of the individual share is very high, but that doesn't necessarily mean we wouldn't necessarily call it expensive. It's, it's how much you're paying per dollar of earnings. You know, any company could make their shares more expensive by just saying, oh, we have fewer shares now. We went from a million shares to 100,000 shares. That would mean the price just went up by 10 times. That doesn't mean the value of the company changed any. So I was just looking at some other high price stock. And of course, Berkshire is far and away the most expensive one. You can get a Class B stock that is much more affordable. but a couple of other recognizable companies that have very high prices, Amazon and Google. Google's at about 2700 Amazon's over 3000 And it's just because they haven't split their shares to make them more affordable to people. And that used to be a big thing when it was just simply easier to buy a $20 share because that's all you had. And it's hard to buy a, a whole block of $1,000 shares because you just need more money. That's a little less relevant today. If people access the market through more through funds, and also a lot of brokerages have opened up fractional share trading where you can participate in the growth of the company for fewer dollars. So as we know, every company is in an industry. So uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the relative strength of the industry that the company is in? So that's, that's really an interesting question, and a lot of that gets to what the motivation of the individual investor is. So there are some investors who say, oh, I wanna, only want to invest in the top companies of their sector. And so they may look for the companies who have the biggest growth rate, maybe not caring so much about the earnings, maybe not caring so much about what their assets are, but they're looking for growth, be it earnings growth, sales growth, et cetera. Some people may invest only in specific industries. They may only invest in financial companies. They may only invest in utilities or, or technology companies. They may have a focus on the type of companies that they, they try to learn about and understand. And then they would probably look for all different sort of aspects underneath there. But different companies have different strategies, products, different management. So there are a lot of different factors to look just beyond, oh, I just like a strong industry. Because while you're invest when you invest broadly, 
you may want to say, okay, well, the finance industry, it's, I just don't anticipate that much growth about it, that much growth from it, and I would prefer to invest in these business-to-business technology companies. But if you are looking at individual stocks, you may say, well, I may not like financial companies and banks that much, but this one in particular appears like it is set up for very good growth. Or maybe this subsector, maybe the, maybe the insurance providers are going to be a very good investment versus the large banks. So there's a lot of ways you can break that down. You know, like a lot of things that we talk about on Money Talks, uh, research is important if you're going to be investing in the stock market. Uh, things like, you know, before you go in there, know how much risk you're willing to assume, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Very important. There, And I think it's important for an I- investors to kind of establish some of those ground rules, some of their comfort level before they even start looking at stocks. So, Because it can be – and here's the thing. I love looking at individual stocks. I love individual stocks. This is what got me into the business is following individual stocks. But it can get so easy to get carried away in, in, in a very compelling company story if you don't have some ground rules about, oh, I don't invest in this type of company, or here are some hard limits that I look for when I'm doing my research. We've got another caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Steve. He's called in from Madison today. Go ahead, Steve. You're on the air. Good morning. Morning. Um, I have a question about some money that I have in a 401k retirement plan. I'm now retired and have been for uh, about three years. Uh, I'm 66, and when I left the company, I just I just left the money in the retirement account. And uh, it's grown a little bit. Of course, it's I can move the money around between different types of investments, um, but I can't add any more. You know, I can't add to the account or anything like that uh, unless I roll it into something different. So it's just been sitting there. I wondered what what my options might be to uh, better my investment on the money. So that's interesting. A lot of times when people leave an employer, they will roll their 401k out because they want to have a little more control over it. There are a few features that make 401ks attractive while you're still at the employer, namely the ability to automatically defer money from your paycheck. Of course, once you're no longer working there, no, you cannot contribute to an old 401k. And in fact, if you're not working at all, you may not be able to contribute even to an IRA should you roll it over. Some of the limiting factors of 401ks are the fees of the individual 401k and the limited options. A lot of times, a lot of times, even a fairly good 401k with lots of features, one that people who participated in are happy with, may have hidden fees in in the form of high expense ratios within the fund or simply a very limited fund choice. I've seen 401ks that have you know maybe a decent 10 funds for US stocks and bonds and then one or I've even seen one with, that does not have international stocks so if you feel that investing internationally is prudent if you feel that's where growth is if you want to diversify your portfolio into international funds you simply couldn't do it in that 401k uh, of course you can't generally invest in individual stocks within a 401k 
and a lot of times people do want to do something different, a little more interesting, a little more custom tuned to what they need. And of course, with an IRA, you can have a self-managed IRA, for instance, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, that just allows you a lot more control about when you're taking money out and when you're placing trades. Again, 401ks have a lot of limits on that. If you want an account where you can continue to add money, if you're no longer working, that's probably just going to be a regular, what we call a taxable account, maybe an individual account. If you're married, you may have a joint account with your spouse. But that's just an account you can put money in, you can take money out. There's no tax rules. There's no tax benefits for putting money in or taking it out. There's no tax penalties for putting it in and taking it out. So it doesn't have – the big thing about 401Ks is that they have a that, that huge tax benefit. So if you roll it over, you're going to have a lot more options for how you invest. You can pick individual stocks. You can custom tune it for your own needs. You can make changes probably far more frequently or make different changes than you would be allowed in the 401K. True. Okay. Sounds good. It's, it's, in, a, it's in a pretty good uh, 401K right now. There's plenty to choose from as far as investment. That's good. So maybe yes, maybe the best thing to just leave it there. Yes, and that's something if you want someone if you work with a financial advisor, they'd probably be more than happy to take a look at those investments and see you know, are they truly great investments for you? You know, are, are they good options for your investing style? Are they do they have good enough options? for what your values and needs are in the future, of course. And then, of course, are, are, do they have reasonable expense ratios? I was just looking at something the other day. It, this was a much older 401k. 401ks have improved so much in the past, even in the past few years. But I remember looking at an old 401k where they had an index fund that you thought would be incredibly low cost, but they were charging 1.3% on it. The company managing it, the company managing that 401k, they probably pitched that 401k to the company and said, oh, we're not going to charge you a thing. We're going to do all this for free. We're going to offer all these benefits, and then turned around and charged the participants 1.3% on an index fund and absolutely made a killing off of that. So there can be some, some definitely some hidden fees due to their complexity and the features that people are paying for while they're working there, those may not be as beneficial for you now, and you may still be paying for some of them. So those are two things I would watch out for. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for your advice. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve, for the call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We'll continue talking about stocks after a quick break. What's the first company to be publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange? They still have shares traded today. We've got that for you when we come back. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. We're pleased you found our show Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Taft Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. 
Here's a reminder. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m., listen live to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio immediately following our show. We're talking about stocks and stock buying today. The Bank of New York was founded in 1784 by Alexander Hamilton and was the first company to be publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. In 2007, the Bank of New York merged with Mellon Financial to become Bank of New York Mellon, NYSE colon BK. So, Ryder, we've been talking about some things to consider about companies before you make an investment uh, with stocks. Uh, another thing, I guess, that you'd pay close attention to is the management of the company, maybe both uh, the, the way the company is structured, but also what's the leadership like? That's correct. People do pay a lot of attention to that. And it's a question of, do you want a bank that was founded by Alexander Hamilton and carries on his legacy, or do you want some other company? Um, and I, I, I love that, that fascinating uh, little tidbit about BK. So leadership is very important. Uh, there's obviously a lot of discussion about how important it is, because is it really the leadership's responsibility that they sold, sold so many products, or did they just happen to come around at the right time? But if you think about it, people talk about and, and idolize some very important CEOs and, and so you think they, their decisions and the way they led the company, they do matter in some way. If you look at Jeff Bezos of Amazon and how he grew his company, if you look at Steve Jobs and, and the way he pushed innovation at Apple and how Tim Cook has managed it since then, even we were just talking about Warren Buffett, people admire his investing skills so much and look at that leadership. And it's not only just is it the power of this star at the helm, but of course, corporations, these companies are huge. They have tens and hundreds of thousands of employees. They, they have billions of dollars in revenue. It's not just that one person, but the management does matter. And there are various ways to look at the quality of management, to look at how much is the management paying attention. Of course, it, it can go both ways. You look at the management of, say, Enron, and you're looking at a bunch of financial fraudsters. <laughs> so management can obviously be very bad for a company as well. So I do believe that, yes, management does matter, and there are ways of looking and analyzing that management. Uh, we're running out of time in the hour, but we have, do have time for our friend Sue from Beaumont. Her call. Go ahead, Sue. You're on the air. Yes, I've always been curious and wondering why people don't manage their own money and keep the IRAs and all these other people out of your money. Go put your money in a safety deposit box. You can go get it anytime you want to. You don't jump through hoops to get it. You're not being defrauded. Or, or I watched this show, American Greed. There's so many. There's so much fraud that goes on. Why don't people just manage their own money? Do like old people used to do, take their money and bury the fruit jar out in the backyard. You're just safe and secure. You know where it's at. You can go get it when you want to. And it's not in the hands of other people. I don't understand why people think they have to put their money and their income in, in other people's hands. Hey, Ryder, can I take a shot at this one? Oh, sure. Absolutely, Kevin. Because I think people want their money to earn more money, and if it's stuck out in the backyard in a in a fruit jar, it's going to be ten dollars until the time ends. Whereas if it's invested, it might be more. Am I on the right track? But at least they that's know where it's at, and they can get their hands on it. 
Well, I think, uh, Sue, the modern financial system has very good ways of keeping track and making sure that ownership remains yours, uh, kind of regardless of what it is. And when you're talking about putting money in a safe deposit box or a fruit jar, one of the things we've been talking about this past year is how inflation is eroding the purchasing power of those dollars. So again, like Kevin said, you put $10 in a fruit jar in the backyard, it's going to be $10 in 10 years. But what is that $10 going to do for you? That $10 can buy you X now. It can buy you however many loaves of bread and, and gallons of milk. But how many loaves of bread and gallons of milk is that going to buy you in the future? So one thing is put it in a bank account where it's actually a, probably a lot easier to access than a fruit jar in the backyard. Think of how much of a hassle it would be to go dig up that fruit jar every time you needed to pop out to the store. And how convenient Visa and MasterCard and American Express has made it for you to access your own money. Uh, at any time with merely a piece of plastic that you have to carry around. So th these innovations are very useful for people. There are good and bad things about everything that's come out of them, but they're very useful, and they don't actually cost that much to people. And, of course, like Kevin alluded to, you might invest furthermore in bonds or stocks of companies because you're seeking a higher return. And, of course, we are talking about getting into very complex financial dealings, and so people often do want an expert uh, by their side during those investments. All right, Sue, thanks for the call. Ryder only got about a minute left, but what about dividends? Um, do all corporations pay them, and is it that just a, an individual decision uh, by the corporation? Yes, it's an individual decision by the corporation. My favorite thing about dividends is it's a quarterly reminder to the board of directors who really owns the company. They're one of two big ways that corporations return money to their investors. Because again, the point of investing in a company is to be rewarded with their growth. Of course, you own a share of that earnings, but you can't really just like reach in and grab the earnings on your own. You have to have it sent to you as a dividend, or the company may buy back the shares. And those are very similar processes. Dividends have a slightly worse tax treatment because the company pays taxes on the dividends and then the recipient pays taxes on the dividends and they can't control the timing of that. Whereas share buybacks, a company may have a million shares outstanding and they may buy half a million of them. So some of those investors can cash out and the ones that stay are left with a larger share of that corporation. And that is how money is returned to investors. And again, that's the point of investing in these companies. That's the point of betting on the long-term future of these companies is to get money back out of them. All right. Good show, Ryder. Thanks for being with us today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by you, our listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash moneytalks. Or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your favorite podcasting app. Today's show was engineered by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Lisa Lancaster. For Ryder Taff, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.